Hello, I'm your host, Jake Thorne, and welcome to another edition of the American Sheep Industry Association's Research Update. Sheep producers across the U.S. and worldwide, for that matter, deal with a litany of challenges. But as you know, an attitude of perseverance and willingness to adapt and improvise are critical to ultimately being successful. So our topic today is one of those challenges that has remained a constant thorn in the side of sheep producers throughout history, and that is predator control. Uh, in fact, such a big topic is predator control, we are actually going to split it into a two-part podcast series. And for today's episode, in which we'll be discussing non-lethal methods, we have also brought in two guests. Uh, so both of the gentlemen joining me today are true experts in every sense of the word. And I'm really excited we were able to bring them both together to shed some light uh, on the latest research that's been done and also just to get their perspectives on maintaining a sheep production system in an environment where predators are present. Uh, so with me is Dan Macon with the University of California Cooperative Extension and somebody who wears a lot of hats in the industry. Uh, extension agent, researcher, producer, guard dog enthusiast, and uh, hopefully you're okay with me adding this one, social media sheep influencer. <laughs> uh, additionally, we also have uh, Dr. John Tomachek, who's an assistant professor and extension wildlife specialist with Texas A&M University. And again, somebody who has an incredible wealth of knowledge on the interactions between ranching, wildlife, and the ecosystems that they both coexist in. So gentlemen, thanks for being on. Thank you. Thank you, Jake. Absolutely. And uh, a one-liner introducing you is not enough. So I, I'm going to ask you, first of all, to, to go ahead and, and give a little background about yourself. So Dan, if you'd like to start, can you just tell us a little more about your position and, and how you got to where you're at? Absolutely. And I will say that since this is a podcast, people don't know how funny the statement that I wear lots of hats yeah. actually is. <laughs> Fair um, enough. As a bald guy. Yeah. But uh, Thank you, Jake. I, I'm, I'm, as you said, a, a livestock um, and range extension agent here in Northern California. Um, we also have a small scale commercial sheep, um, sheep operation focused primarily on, um, on annual rangeland and, and a little bit of irrigated pasture. Um, I'm a lifelong Californian and, and uh, almost lifelong Sierra Foothills resident. So um, kind of in my native habitat in some respects. I think. Sure. Fantastic. Uh, John, how about yourself? A little more background about you? Yeah, sure. I'm glad to be here, Jake. Appreciate the, the invitation. So as you pointed out, uh, my role primarily here is on the wildlife side of things. And I, I really never had a lot of interaction with sheep before I started working for Extension and I got assigned to the San Angelo station. I grew up in a beef cattle family, right? So problems are different. And I, I apologize for that background uh, to every sheep producer on the call. That's but uh, when, when I got started in Angelo, I was told, you know, John, do things that are relevant to, to the needs of landowners. And, and this issue kept coming up, right? Predation things and, and how problems and solutions as they're available are changing over the years and, and folks needed more help. So I, I'd never done much with predators at that point, but we dove in foot, uh, feet first and kind of got on board with it. And nowadays, I would say most of what I do is helping folks manage those conflicts between uh, wildlife and, and human issues, right? Whether that's livestock or farming or whatever it happens to be, is finding a way to make both of those things work together. Yeah, great. And this is gonna be an, an absolutely awesome discussion to have both of you on. Thank you very much. 
Uh, so we're going to dive right in. Um, Dan, I'm, I'm going to start with you. Uh, you know, as a sheep producer yourself, uh, can you talk about just the impact that predation has on the mindset of a producer? Um, I guess, you know, when we find a fresh kill uh, by a predator, uh, would you agree that, you know, the common knee-jerk reaction is to automatically want to just remove that predator? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, I think even those of us who are really <clears throat> committed to, to using these non-lethal tools also take our jobs very seriously as shepherds. And um, part of that job is to be responsible for all of our sheep at all times. So I think finding a, a fresh kill like that um, does create that kind of mindset that you want to go out and, and take care of the problem. But I think it's also a little more complicated than that in my experience. You know, I think part of it is really understanding what predator was responsible. Mm -hmm. I think many of us have a knee-jerk reaction, um, certainly here in the foothills of, of the Sierra Nevada. Gosh, everything that, that dies is probably a mountain lion, right? And yet yeah. that's probably not entirely true and, and not even close to true in many cases. Yeah. And I've never actually witnessed an attack. You know, I've come upon sheep that were killed the night before or, or a day or two before. Um, and that kind of creates that situation where you, unless you really know the signs to look for, right. it's hard to tell exactly what was responsible. And I, I think that for me has been a really important lesson. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, just like you, you said something that was really interesting, everything that dies is associated with a predator or, you know, specifically a mountain lion, but that doesn't necessarily mean they were even predated upon at all. Um, often that just kind of gets lumped under that umbrella. That's right. Um, so, John, you probably, you know, as, as being a, a non-sheep background, um, you probably don't have the same kind of inborn negative bias towards predators that a lot of sheep folks, you know, are inherently born with. Um, can you touch briefly on the role of predators in the ecosystem and their motives and how sometimes just understanding the basics of their mindset might help us with control methods in the long run? Yeah, I, I appreciate that, Dick. You know, it's such a, a deep topic. And as you know, for somebody that grew up in beef cattle and rangeland beef cattle, predation wasn't as much of an issue. It does happen, but it wasn't as much of a problem. When I think about the interactions that we would have with loss, we would often say, you know, if we have uh, a calf that gets lost with a beef cattle situation, well, you got a bad mama, right? That's, a, that's a, a husbandry issue. We need to deal with that. And we've all witnessed that. But from a predator's perspective, it kind of dovetails in. So these animals are part of the native ecosystem that we rely on. And, and for folks that are rangeland producers, I always say, look, you've got a system that, that's built that mother nature maintains and we rely on that for income. So we try to keep that system intact. And in many ways, those native predators are our check valve on too many wild mouths to feed that are eating the same range resources as the livestock. So it, you get a problem, right? So if you're experiencing a drought year, you've got a lot of herbivores out there and range resources get degraded, generally what happens is those predators are gonna help remove enough mouths on the landscape to keep that range, even though it looks bad, right? Might be a little bit degraded this year. They're that nature check valve that we've got out there to keep those resources intact. Aside from things like uh, cleaning up uh, disease killed things, right? Stuff that's yep. died out there that's infectious disease related. A lot of our native predators don't succumb to those diseases and, and in essence, process and filter those pathogens. So it's got a lot of roles to fill in the ecosystem, 
But when it comes to things that we encounter as predation, as a, a person that works on wildlife damage, I say, look, if I've got a coyote, for example, that's eating rabbits and rats and mice, and they, I, you have no issues, I have no issues. We're not talking about that the coyotes need to disappear. We're talking about the damage that we experience needs to disappear. So when they start eating livestock, now we've got a problem that we need to address. And it's really that behavior. And there's not a, a tremendous amount known about what makes that, that shift happen. There are a lot of things that probably contribute to it. Part of it's probably learned behavior from a, a parental figure because most of our predators have a lot of parental care, usually at least a year, more than a year spent with their parents learning. And again, depends on the species. But a lot of times it also comes down to what does the range look like right now? So I'm, I'll use a, a black bear example for folks that deal with black bears. A lot of the predation issues we deal with with black bears, especially in the southwestern part of the country and in northern Mexico, they happen spring and summer as those bears are getting up and getting moving for the year. And they come down from wherever they've been resting. And if there are no rangeland resources to use, because they're omnivorous animals, but there's nothing out there. But as a producer, you've maintained a flock that's standing there and in good health, they've got something. They've got to make a meal out of something. So they're going to make that choice. But for the most part, our, our native predators are inherently lazy. They'd rather go for the cheaper, easier meal. Just like I say, sure. the smartest juvenile bear in the world follows around mountain lions and, and doesn't do the killing themselves, right? Yeah. So... Yeah, that's, that's really good. And, and I guess not to like be very overly specific, but um, I, let's think about coyotes here. Uh, you know, many of us loosely understand that they have a, a territory, um, mm -hmm. but can you talk a little bit, a bit more about how those territories are, are established and, and kind of what drives that uh, territory size and, and location? Yeah, so, so this one's a really interesting one that, matter of fact, right now we've got research going on that I'm leading where we're actually starting to understand a little bit more about this. And I'll, I'll, I'll save you that because I can talk all day about it. But, but essentially what we're seeing, there's some traditional knowledge about territories. And I caution folks that live in the West because much of that early on with coyotes, people took what they knew about wolves and they just said, hey, it works on coyotes too. And we're finding that's not true. With coyote territories, over the last four or five decades, we've seen studies that show those territories are actually pretty durable over the years and across individuals. We've had a study that was conducted in Southeast Texas uh, in the 1970s, and then it was conducted again in the 2000s. Territories were almost identical in size and shape. But obviously, those are not the same individuals. What we've seen in GPS collar studies is that they're not even necessarily related individuals. Territories are held, especially during the season when pups are being whelped and pups are being raised. Mm -hmm. And it's a very important thing at that time of year. But you'll see some animals that stay in a territory all year long and, and maybe more than a year and never leave. And some that seem to flip in and out of wandering around and settling down. What it seems to be is the older you get, the less you move around, right? Mm -hmm. Which makes sense to all of us. Uh, I've had a study animal or two, coyote, that they spent their whole year in a 200 acre area. And that 200 acres contained a couple of feed storage buildings and some water and some shade. Sounds like an old lazy man to me and that suits me just fine, right? But, but I think what's important too, that folks understand with coyotes especially, this animal is, is kind of plastic to what's going on in, in the world around it. So when you have lots of coyotes, the territory shrink down in size and they essentially pack themselves in uh, like eggs in an egg carton. 
Right. And so you'll see territories that are two, three, 400 acres in size, but then you get out to places where either resources are limited or there's a lot of uh, trapping, a lot of pressure, and those territories blow up to be 10 square miles or more. Coyotes uh, reproduction has a lot to do with how many are around. So for example, if I don't have a lot of coyotes around, I've got these really big territories, uh, that, that female may have 13 pups in a year, right? She won't, won't raise them all, maybe half of them will survive, but she'll have that many and she'll come into heat every year and, and try to breed every year. In the study site we've got in South Texas where they're, man, they're densely packed in, we see out of 25 females that we, we track, we see maybe one or two actually come into reproductive status, dig dens, and have pups every year. This matters because there was a study done in Utah many years ago where they took some females, they caught them, and they sterilized them, tubal ligation, sterilized mm -hmm. them. And they still dug dens and they still acted like they were going to have pups, right? But then obviously they didn't. And the amount of killing that happened was a tremendous amount lower because they weren't trying to provision those pups. So the territory structures a lot of the food that's being eaten, but how many of those there are out there and what they look like has an awful lot to do with how many coyotes are in that system. Right. Great. Thank you. That's awesome answer. Uh, so Dan, next one's for you. Uh, Non-lethal predator control methods, which we kind of our topic today, um, obviously referencing a scenario where the predator is not killed. Uh, and probably the first thought for many folks in the sheep industry when they hear the term non-lethal are guardian animals, or specifically guard dogs. Uh, and we'll get to dogs here in just a, a second. But before we do that, I, I want to ask you more broadly, what is all encompassed under the umbrella of non-lethal predator control? I think that's a, a great question. And it, it occurs to me that it's, it's very similar to the the idea of drought preparation. It's, mm -hmm. it's a lot of things that we do in the normal course of our operations that maybe we don't think of as, as non-lethal predator protection. I kind of break those in my mind into, into biological tools, kind of managerial tools, and then more physical or, or mechanical tools. And, and I want to come back to something that John said just briefly. I think um, the issue of maternal behavior is probably more important than we even understand mm -hmm. in sheep and goats when it comes to predator control. You know, if you think about those, those ewes that we complain about stomping at the dogs when we're yeah. trying to move a, move a set of pairs, those are probably the ewes that are gonna stand up to something. And, and that might be behavior that we really wanna, wanna keep in terms, in terms of our genetic base. Sure. I think the biological um, non-lethal tools are those things like donkeys and llamas and dogs that, that can think and respond to a situation. Um, and I think um, I think those have some real benefits, which we'll talk about later. I think the kind of the managerial um, aspects to non-lethal predator control are things like um, your lambing season. Um, mm -hmm. You know, what else is out there while you're lambing? Um, taking care of, of, you know, keeping a pasture clean in terms of afterbirth and things like that, that, mm -hmm. that may attract scavenging predators um, and then result in, in more problems. Um, keeping, you know, taking care of our dead stock is, is part of that managerial um, aspect to this as well. And then I do think that there's some physical and mechanical tools that, that many of us use. Electric fence um, yeah. is certainly one that, that we use extensively in our operation. 
um, things like box lights or noise makers or some of the effigies that, that we'll talk about um, are part of that kind of physical or mechanical um, set of tools. And I think, I think um, in terms of, um, you know, mixing those up, we'll talk a little bit about habituation, but I think, I think really in my mind, I've, it's evolved to kind of become more of an integrated system yep. where we're addressing particular situations and specific predators, even individual predators, predators as, as John suggested, um, with kind of an evolving set of tools that, that addresses their, their evolution in terms of interest in our livestock. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, many, many folks don't think about, you know, you said electric fence, just a basic fence is right. be defense number one. Uh, yeah. and it's a, that's a really important thing. Yeah. Uh, so, so John, uh, when we talk non-lethal control methods, you know, I've heard some, some buzzwords that are kind of thrown around about exclusion or dissuasion and disruption. Uh, can you maybe define those a little more clearly for us? And, and how do they tie to some of the methods that, that, um, Dan just mentioned a second ago as, as far as controlling predators or keeping them out. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I love the point that you made right there about even normal net wire fences can be a tremendous tool, right? And, and I, I recall a situation standing with a, a wildlife services trapper working with a sheep raiser and, and he had a lot of issues, right? And the trapper said, well, what, what's your fence maintenance regime? And, and the, the fence looked like Swiss cheese. I mean, to be honest, right? And, and, and fences are expensive. We all get that. We know it, right? But, but the point was made is that if you have a good fence, you're going to cut down on the volume that you have to deal with, which makes it a little more achievable for a private uh, landowner, you know, or if, even if you're in, in public land grazing, what can you do? What, what's an option, right? So exclusion is that, right? Can I, do I have the right, do I have the physical ability to erect something that's going to keep stuff out? And I think to tie back to the biology and, and the desire of these, most of these predators, you also have to ask, what's their physical ability to go over it or under it? How difficult is that? And then how valuable is what's on inside of the fence? So for folks in a, in a rangeland grazing scenario, a net wire fence and one side of the fence looks very much like the other to a coyote, why would I bother? Why would I bother trying to deal with that? That's a lot of effort. I'll give you an example from my past where we had a pen full of, of exotic uh, cervids, exotic hoofstock that were young and being raised. We had a coyote that was climbing a game fence mm -hmm. to get in there, but it was a high value resource, right? So it was worth the effort. Okay, mm -hmm. fair enough. So, so exclusion can be a great tool. If you, it doesn't have to be a, a barrier like a fence. A guard dog can act as a, as a great excluder in some cases or dissuasion in another. So, so dissuasion, basically, there's something out there that convinces me this is not a safe place to be. And, and I encourage people to remember some of our predators really are in, in the ecosystem they developed in the biggest, baddest thing out there. Yep. But you know, when you talk about coyotes, man, they're not. Coyotes okay. were never designed to be the biggest, baddest thing. So many of their behaviors, I could spend all day telling you which ones are designed completely to avoid being killed by gray wolves. There's this thing called uh, intercanid competition a coyote gets a hold of a fox, they kill it. That's why gray foxes can climb trees, by the way. Um, a coyote gets found by a gray wolf, they'll dig the den up and kill every coyote inside, not eat it, and then just move on. Yeah. We don't know why that is. So dissuasion, if you've got a fox slide or a noisemaker, or maybe you're out there and you're on, on big uh, public grazing land and you're busy moving a band of sheep up 
to a, a wintering ground or down from a, a high point, and you're just passing through an area overnight and you park a pickup out there with the radio on all night, that can sometimes be enough to be dissuasion because it's not, not good. Most of your predators are afraid of new things. And so you, you either dissuade long-term with this kind of stuff or you disrupt a pattern. They're on a regular pattern. They go check a spot at a regular time. It's what they do. It might be territory maintenance where I'm gonna look for scat from another animal or sign and I'm gonna do my business and try to protect that territory, right? But I run into something that disrupts my normal pattern and I evaluate it and I go, no, that's, that's a potential hazard. I don't need to deal with that and I go around it. I, I like when we talk about these non-lethal tools, and these biological tools that Dan pointed out, the idea of something like a livestock guardian dog is essentially a disruptor or dissuader that follows your sheep around or vice versa, right? And that's a beautiful thing because so many of these tools, you know, I, I say like a light or a noisemaker, coyotes are afraid of them, but it only lasts for so long. I mean, most predators, it's the case. They figure out what it is after a little while and then it's a non-threat. But the beautiful thing about some of these biologicals, if they work, is they can constantly adapt and constantly provide that, that negative feedback for that predator that, hey, this is not a spot you want to be. I'm a, a 30 pound coyote and that's a 100 pound Pyrenees dog. That math doesn't add up. I'm not going to fight that thing. It looks like a wolf and evolution tells me I'm going to lose that fight. Yeah. And, and I, I think that's most of these tools. You got to base it in what is the biological response or behavior response you're trying to invoke in the predator. And, and again, it can be something so simple as I've got a fence, that fence keeps my sheep in great, but it also presents a, a difficulty to the predator. They've got to deal with it now. If it's too much work to deal with it, they just go on. Right. Great. Uh, you know, and our first instinct is, is to talk coyotes when we talk uh, uh, predation, but you know, Dan, on, on a national scale, uh, you know, we have a, a whole bunch of, of predators. And, and so what, what are the ones that have the largest impact on, on the sheep industry? And as a second part, why do you think that there's been an increase in non-lethal control methods? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm kind of thinking along the, the road of effectiveness or maybe even just public perception. Sure, sure. And you know, the, the USDA data does pretty consistently show that coyotes are the absolutely the one predator, yeah. but there's definitely local differences. Um, mm -hmm. You know, our, in, in kind of our suburban foothill community, free roaming dogs can be a huge issue. That's a big one. And that, you know, I, this, this may be antithetical to, to being a sheep guy, but I can almost kind of understand a coyote getting one now and then. Um, but the neighbor's dog is something that, that is really upsetting to me. Yeah. And, you know, certainly in our part of the world, um, mountain lions, black bears, bobcats and foxes at lambing time, aerial predators can be an issue on occasion. We don't have black vultures like you guys do, but, but we've got golden eagles and, yep. and other, other aerial predators. Um, and so I think it is really, really kind of a localized um, issue it's it's easy to get lost in that kind of thirty thousand foot level of data um, yeah. and think that, that coyotes are the only problem i think in terms of the growth and in, in interest in non-lethal tools um you know i think part of it is is to some extent driven by necessity and i would use my own operation as an example of that you know our sheep are are typically three to seven miles away from our home place 
I can't be there all night. Um, it's a small enough operation that, that I've got to have some other kind of a tool out there to give me some peace of mind. And so I think that's a driver for a lot of folks. I think there's also, and I'd be interested in, in how this relates to what John said about territories. My perception is that in a place like Auburn in the Sierra foothills, and I suspect many other places, the landscapes that we graze are kind of the last refuge, both for rangeland livestock and for wildlife. Yeah. And as land use changes around us, I think we become islands of, of both livestock diversity and, and wildlife diversity, which can create some conflicts to some extent. It also drives the kind of tools we can use. You know, I can't necessarily um, put, have wildlife services put snares up or, or come out and shoot coyotes next to the old lady's house that's renting me pasture. All right. Um, and that, that's part of the issue too. I do think that there's starting to be kind of a marketing um, tie-in in terms of coexistence too. I think, you know, there are, are some, um, in particular, I think with wool, um, some real interest in being able to market the story that goes with that wool production. Mm -hmm. And as we start marketing our, our wool to kind of a new generation of, of folks that are using it for high performance athletic gear or buying wool because of the story that goes with it, that, that story we can tell about trying to coexist has some value yep. to us as well. Um, so I, I think there's a lot of drivers there. And yeah, it's an interesting time for that for that reason. Sure, and, and so guardian animals, uh, and that can be dogs, but also llamas and, and donkeys. Um, are they are they exclusively non-lethal? We put them in that category, but is is that a, a always true? Yeah, no, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no. I, you know, I think that's a that's a great question, and there's been been some research. Um, done i think it was in south africa kind of looking at, at some of that um and and found for the most part that um that yes it, the dogs were non-lethal but not in every case and certainly we've all talked to producers who've watched guard dogs um kill a coyote or mm -hmm. um you know even even in some cases talk to folks that have had guard dogs gang up on and, and kill a, a single wolf um, not nearly as common as the coyote issue, obviously. But I, I, think, um, I think in watching the dogs that I've been around, and, and even to some extent donkeys and llamas, that they're pretty good at discerning threat, threatening situations from non-threatening situations. And I think dogs in particular um, kind of have this, this escalation strategy where if the first strategy, typically barking, doesn't work, then it kind of escalates from there. Um, I think part of that depends on the other tools we're using too. You know, in, in my experience, I've not had a dog, to my knowledge, kill a coyote, um, but we've certainly had them take on bobcats and raccoons and, and other smaller critters like that because they're, they're inside the electric fences. Mm -hmm. um, but I do think that's one of the values of, of these biological tools that they've they're, they're thinking for themselves too. Sure. Right. Uh, so John, I kind of want to circle back to uh, your comment about disruption uh, and, and guarding animals and their interaction with, with coyotes. Uh, you know, we talked about 
territories and, and you described how uh, predators establish those home ranges. And if that home range overlaps with sheep production and the presence of a guard dog is there, you know, just how does that disruption of that predator's home range occur? Um, and what are some maybe expected changes in, the, in their behavior, the predator's behavior? No, I, I think that's a great one. You know, Jake, we had a, a great research study on that a few years ago, and, and at least in the context of those studies that we've watched uh, the predatory animals, and, and that, again, we always default to, to coyotes, so, but in that case, you know, we were looking at coyotes and bobcats, foxes, all kinds of stuff, everything that was out there. And what was neat that we found is that there's a lot of concern among producers I've worked with. They say, well, I bring a guard dog out, they're going to push all the coyotes off of me in an ideal world, but then I pushed them onto my neighbors and I, I don't want to be a bad neighbor. I like my neighbors, right? Maybe you do, right? My, my dad always hated the neighbors except for one guy, right? So if we pushed them on them, Directional that's change, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? Okay, so we don't want to do that, especially if, like Dan points out, we're kind of this last bastion of livestock raising. We're, we're all in this together, okay. So what was neat that we've seen is that, yeah, the dogs are out there, but it's not a, a pasture level push them out. It, we had coyotes in and among the same areas that there were guard dogs and sheep, sometimes fairly close in time together, but very rarely at the same time because these animals are not dumb. Every sheep raiser that ever had a coyote dig a trap or close a snare or something like that knows they're not dumb. These predatory animals can interpret what's going on and they're just going to move to a, a lower risk situation if that's travel or feeding or what have you and most of these animals are traveling or can travel such big country that they're not going to worry about i've got a dog with some sheep over here that's fine uh, even if it overlaps the kind of territory i've got it's unlikely that they're going to be forced into a, a, a conflict scenario they can just avoid much more easily than that and, and like Dan points out, sometimes those do happen. But remember, for most of your predators, even when they interact with one another to dispute a territory boundary, rarely is it ever like a, a lethal interaction or an extremely damaging interaction. It's usually a lot of posturing and a lot of noise and a lot of sound and fury, right? And then one of them goes, I'm done, I'm out, right? And they take off. And that's kind of, again, for us as humans, we do some of that too, right? But a lot of times it comes to blows and then we decide in the, in the, the parking lot of the, the beer joint who actually was the bigger guy, right? Okay. But at the same time, your, your goal, at least I hope, is not to, to get rid of that person. You just want to be right, right? Yeah. And, and in this case, it's the same kind of idea. You don't have to have a fight about it because in most of those situations, like Dan points out, some of these animals are inside of the electric fence and domestic dogs especially know their territory. They know their boundaries. They learn it. Mm -hmm. And they might say, nope, that is not going to happen here. And the communication is just not working like it could with, with another canine perhaps. But it is still an effective tool. And I, I like what Dan points out. I mean, the, the, in, the intent may not be lethal. Just like with foothold trapping, foothold traps aren't lethal, right? You, you decide what to do with that animal. And so I, I think that's the thing. There are some dog breeds out there uh, that were bred to kill bears and that's what they do, right? These are hunting dogs. They're designed to kill bears, kill boars, whatever else, kill wolves, but that's not what your guardian breeds necessarily were bred to do all the time. Right, yeah, great. So Dan, kind of the same scenario. You've spent countless hours observing guard dog behavior. Same scenario, what's going on in the mind of the dog in that situation when their home ranges are, are overlapping? And again, what are the behaviors in the dog that might change 
uh, in the presence of varying levels of predation? I think that's also a great question, Jake. And I, I think, uh, <laughs> I wish I knew what was going on in the mind of my dog sometimes. Um, but, yeah. but I think just observing, <laughs> observing those behaviors, one of the things that I've, I've really noted over the years when we come into a new paddock or a new piece of country with, with dogs, their first instinct, even if there's something else going on, is to go around and mark the edge of what yeah. they perceive their area to be. Um, and I think that's, you know, we can always <laughs> count on the dogs finding a hole in the fence in mm -hmm. the first 10 minutes they're in a new field because they're doing that kind of exploring, which I think is just absolutely fascinating. I've noticed with our dogs um, and have, have talked to other producers about this, that when there is, when there does seem to be a lot of predator pressure, the dogs are really hyper vigilant and much more alert, particularly at night. I think we kind of see those, those um, changes in behavior kind of at dark through the night and then early morning hours when the predators are more active. Um, noticed with our dogs that sometimes especially at lambing when we we lamb outside on pasture um, they're hyper vigilant even to the point of agitation yep. and you come out there at dusk and and they're just upset and you can tell you can tell that something's going on right we'll hear more barking um obviously that's kind of kind of typical too and and it's funny i think um Barking in the dogs we've had is kind of related to maturity. The older dog doesn't bark unless there's a reason to. Yeah. The younger dogs kind of bark just because it's going to do, I think. Yeah. Which is not necessarily great for neighbor relations either. Yeah. Um, but I've, I've also noticed with our dogs that sometimes um, if we've noticed that behavior at night, we'll also notice them doing a lot more sleeping in the daytime. Yeah. That it does wear them out. Um, and I think the GPS data that we've collected um, here in California kind of shows that pattern too, that, that there's a lot more activity when you'd expect predators to be more active. Well, that's such a common statement from producers who are new to dogs is they drive out there the day and they see the dog laying <laughs> under the tree and see on you know, good for nothing dog. Well, <laughs> maybe he's... That's act that's actually the reason I started using some GPS collars because I wanted to be able to show people that they were doing more than sleeping under the tree. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and so you, you said something that was really interesting, talking about the maturity of the dog. How does the maturity of those guardian dogs uh, change the way that they view protection of their flock? You know, at what point or, or kind of when do they turn a corner and say, you know, I'm not just out here to hang out with the sheep. I'm really here to do a job. You know, I think, I think that varies by individual dog to a great extent. Yeah. Um, every dog that I've had and, and every dog that I have observed from puppyhood to adulthood kind of goes through um, this terrible teenage phase where you're, you're not, just like human teenagers, you're not sure how they're going to turn out. Um, and at that point, you know, there are some behavioral issues that, that I think most of us deal with and and have varying levels of frustration with. Mm -hmm. I have found that with our dogs, somewhere between 18 and 24 months of age, um, if they're going to be a dog that, that we're going to keep, they do turn that corner. And part of what I kind of look for is an appropriate degree of submissiveness to the sheep, you know, laying on their back um, in the midst of the sheep, 
or just generally comfortable with the sheep, but not comfortable with some kind of new stimulus in their environment, right. in particular if it's a predator. We've started doing, I, I don't like starting my dogs as pups with an older dog for a variety of reasons, but we've started at around 18 to 24 months of age, um, that young dog's first lambing season, we'll put it with lambing ewes with an older dog and that older dog probably to keep the young dog from eating after birth. Mm. But invariably that older dog will chase the young dog away from the lambing ewe. And that's kind of the last test that we use that, 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 that enforcement of appropriate respect for the sheep, yep. regardless of the reason is kind of the last test that we look for. And if a dog passes that test, it stays. If it fails that test, that we find another place for that dog to be. Right. Great. Yeah. And so I'm just kind of envisioning, you know, the, the overlapping ranges, coyotes and, and guard dogs and, and the interactions there. Um, and it, it makes me think and or question, you know, what is driving that coyote's desire to predate upon livestock? So John, do you think that you know, eating, killing and eating sheep and goats is an instinctual thing that all coyotes are born with, or do you think that's a learned behavior? So I, I think that's a really great question. And, and like every good wildlife biologist ever, I'm going to answer it with, it depends. I saw yeah. Dan smiling before I finished, right? So, so that, that's a thing. It depends. But here's what I will say about that. There have been a few studies over the years that specifically ask that question. If I was raised on a diet of lamb or beef or, or goat or whatever, Am I more likely to seek that out because I have a taste for it? Which is something we kind of think about intuitively, right? Mm -hmm. Maybe, okay. So the few studies that were done really didn't show a lot of relationship. You know, I, I gave you a choice, a cafeteria style choice growing up. You could eat whatever you wanted, or we chose this and we raised this coyote on lamb and this one on beef, and then we let them eat whatever they wanted. They didn't necessarily go to those things, nor did they kill those things. Uh, and I, I think that's something important to recognize. Most of your predators are not as concerned about what it is they're eating so much as that it was cheap and easy because they've got to think about how much energy they're putting out. So I, I point this out because you have some animals in the predatory world that are looking for a certain situation. So I'll use uh, golden eagles as an example because I don't care who you are uh, worldwide. If you're in the Northern hemisphere, you deal with the same bird. And, and the best thing I ever heard came from a, a biologist out of Germany who came to the U.S. and toured around to look at bighorn sheep because he worked on, on a few species of mountain sheep and mountain goats in Europe. And he saw golden eagles and he went, ah, you have them too. Do they also knock things off of mountains and then eat them when they hit the bottom? And I said, yeah, they do. And, and, and we talked about the kind of predatory behavior. And again, those species are built, they're searching for an animal that looks like something in the system that works with their mode of feeding. So when you get something like a coyote, they have a hard time doing live predation on large things, right? I hate to say it, but sheep and goats are about as big as they can handle reliably. But I think it comes down to kind of like we talked about earlier, what are the alternative prey items available? How abundant are they? And, and so what kind of pressure is there on me to make a meal out of those livestock? How much pressure do I have on me to go, that's the only thing. But I do believe that there are animals that once they learn, they get a positive feedback from, I needed to make a meal. I was able to successfully kill that animal. I now know how, and it's a reliable source of food. 
that I think turns into a learned behavior that then can be passed on. The thing I want to point out for our folks living all across the West, especially if you deal with like a mountain lion, for example, mountain lions are tricky because we've seen in studies in various parts of the West that they tend to specialize on a prey item. So for example, in Western Texas, they might specialize on mule deer and another lion living very nearby might specialize on javelina or it might specialize on sheep or I mean something, right? So they're, they're essentially able to not compete with one another because they're focusing on different things. And that's a whole other tricky situation. So I, I think some of this Jake is learned, but I think some of it is just opportunistic and that if it's got a good positive feedback, it turns into a learned behavior that can be passed on. Right. Uh, and so just something that popped in my mind, I mean, do you believe that there's such a thing as a, a good coyote from the sheep producer's perspective? Is there a good coyote that won't eat sheep or won't eat livestock? So I, I think that's a great point. You know, uh, there have been a number of studies over the years that have, have in essence showed that. Uh, so UC Davis had a great one years ago, and I, I apologize, I can't think of the year it was done, but they had a number of intensely tracked coyotes and they had some that were living in sheep pastures but they were never able to tie those animals back to any kills. Yeah. And it's not to say that it didn't happen, but um, I will tell you my personal experience is the, the, as the years go on, sheep raisers are asking more and more questions about does every coyote eat sheep or can I just focus on managing the ones that are problems? And that's a productive train of thought because it's less, less output, less time on a person whose time's already stretched and it's just focusing on the damage from the animals that are causing it. And in essence, if you think about it like an uh, animal breeding or, or we're breeding for certain traits, like Dan mentioned that defensive you, same the way I think about like uh, rangy South Texas cows that I can't even get close to mama with a calf when I'm on a horse, she's fine, right? She's not gonna have any problems. I think about the same way, if I get rid of the predators that have learned that eating livestock is a positive thing for them, I'm left with animals that don't teach their offspring to do that. Mm -hmm. And I'm sure at some point somebody's going to try it, right? That's yeah. why management's a constant thing. But yeah, I, I think that there's coyotes out there from a sheep raiser's perspective that are benign because they're also cutting down on jackrabbits and mice and rats and other stuff that might be a nuisance for you. Sure. Right. Okay. We're going to, we're going to go back to the GPS discussion. Uh, <laughs> Cause I think that's super interesting. You know, you both have been, have done some research with GPS and studying movements of, of guard dogs and the interactions between guard dogs and, and the sheep that they're guarding. Uh, you know, John, I'll start with you, uh, but I want to hear both your perspective on this. Uh, can you describe some of the research that you performed here in, in West Central Texas, San Angelo area, uh, and what you kind of learned from that with the GPS collars on the, the dogs and the sheep. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So I, I'm really glad you brought that up. So as I said earlier, when I first got involved, I was not a sheep person. And so I learned a whole lot from the folks there at the center and a lot of producers locally. And that was awesome. So when we got involved with this, you know, we had that property there, uh, the Martin Ranch property where we we're doing the study and sheep were already there and the dogs were already established. So we were looking at how, how does this work? And it's a great question. It was, this is a tool that's been around for thousands of years, but there's not a lot of hard data on how these things work and, and what they do and don't do. So we put GPS collars on five dogs that we had out there. Every dog on the property got a collar for those of you are listening, just so you know. 
And then we had uh, a subset of all the sheep and goats that were on the property marked with another radio collar that essentially talked to the, the guard dog's collar. So I knew who was around whom at any given time. And what I'll tell you, we found from that is that on that property, the dogs did a great job of staying with the flocks, even though they crossed interior fences that were the same quality type and height as the perimeter fence. We only ever had a couple of situations where they left the property and, and it was a matter of minutes that they were gone. So perhaps they're dealing with a predator, who knows, right? But they could, they could have crossed those fences, but they didn't. They were so tightly bonded to those sheep and, and to those goats. And you could see where they were at any given time, pretty well told us what the sheep were doing. When it was lambing season, I could tell because the dogs were out there and they did not move very far in those periods of time. You go out there personally to check on them. And it, and it's a, I wish I had a poster of it as a, as a thing to show people about dogs. And you've got ewes that are bedded down lambing and you've got the dog making a, a circuit, right? Essentially making the rounds like a doctor on a hospital floor checking on everybody. And it was cool. And like Dan pointed out, the dogs were a little bit annoyed that I was there. I'm busy, get away from me. Okay, okay. But, but the thing we saw is the dogs, they, they didn't, uh, there wasn't really a, an established relationship with, you know, they, they won't go everywhere because they're getting far from water or from something. But, but again, in those pastures, the water was really well distributed. The thing that really stood out to me that I didn't expect was how closely tied certain sheep were to the dogs. And, and again, who knows which way this goes, but we had a core group of ewes that hung around each of the dogs, kind of their little fan club, right? That's what I say. Or just the smartest sheep who went, the closer <laughs> I stand to that thing, the safer I am. But they were almost always together. And that doesn't mean that at night when they were bedded down, like they kept moving to stay with the dog or the dog wasn't with others. They, the dogs made the rounds. They were around all of the sheep and all the goats. But what we also saw is when we had a, a situation where those sheep were removed from the property for a little while for shearing, we had the dogs, if their buddies weren't there, they started to go looking for them. And, and I, I express it as they ping-ponged around the property. And I mean that term when I say it, because we still didn't see them leave the property. They're bouncing off the perimeters, looking for the sheep because they have in their mind, they're gonna be somewhere in this area. I just lost track of them. And once the sheep came back, oh, they settled down. They were happy as can be. And they went back to what they did. That kind of tight bonding we know about it, we talk about it, but to show people, this is how it actually worked. And yeah, the dogs are pretty much always out there. And, and like what Dan talked about, we saw some differences between nighttime and daytime activity, but it had a lot to do with time of year. And it had a lot to do what was going on in the biology of predators that time of year and in the biology of the sheep and goats that time of year. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Dan, do you have um, some follow-up to that? Or is that similar to kind of what you observed? And, and also, I know you've done some GPS as well, I think. Yeah, it's very, very similar to, to some of the things I've observed. And, and I, it's, I think it's just fascinating to, to be able to look at what's happening when, when you're not there observing. Um, I think that's a, that's a really important point. I think the other thing that occurs to me in, in what John said that, that we tend to discount is that the bonding process has to work both ways. Um, a group of sheep that's not ever been around dogs responds very differently than a group of sheep that's with its own dog. And we're actually um, starting a, a demonstration project here in wolf habitat to, to try to demonstrate how we can bond dogs with cattle um, 
to, to see if there's a, an opportunity to use that tool. I think, um, you know, I think the other thing that, that we're discovering with some of this GPS technology um, is that there's a lot of worry on our public lands in particular that these dogs are going to roam and get into trouble and chase bikers and um, hang out in campgrounds and and really we're able to show that that's not the case with this kind of technology. There was a, a interesting project done up in Montana that, that showed that those dogs aren't going more than about a quarter mile from their sheep. Uh, and, and I think that's an important piece of being able to use this tool in some of those, those settings as well. Um, uh, it's, I, I think there's, as this technology becomes cheaper and cheaper, there's gonna be an opportunity to do more of this kind of data collection at a much finer scale, um, much more granular information in terms of the time scale to really see what, what these dogs are doing and, and when they're doing it and, and relate that back to sheep behavior and to, to predator behavior. Yeah, absolutely. That's critical what you're talking about, the interaction with guard dogs and the public, especially on, on federal land. GPS becomes really crucial here. Uh, John, I don't, I don't know if this is the right time to ask you this, but it, you're talking about the research that was done um, there in, in West Central Texas. And I know that you also had another study that was going on at that property at the same time looking at dietary preference of, of predators uh, or just farmers in general. Um, I'd love to hear some more about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, for, for sure, Jake. You know, that's, that's one of those interesting things. So I, I tell people that when, when kids decide they want to come into wildlife and they, students and they get a degree and they, oh, I'm going to go work on predators. And it sounds really slick, right? It sounds really neat. And they imagine they're going to go out there and be like the crocodile hunter and catch things. And I mean, we do some of that. And, and that's the thing I, I didn't mention. You know, I grew up in, in beef cattle and I trapped growing up because I enjoyed it. And, and I like fur trapping and I did some private trapping out of college. But yeah, I love doing that stuff. But we had students that to establish what diet was like for these predators on the property. We're really good at identifying the source of a piece of scat out there on the road, right? I mean, wildlife people spend time learning how to decide what, what, um, what excrement came from what critter. And, and for us, it's important, right? So we had, um, I can't, God, I can't remember anymore, Jake. It's something like 50 kilometers of road exist on that property. And I had graduate students every month walk every single foot of road and pick up every piece of scat they could find that belonged to a carnivore. And we bagged it, tagged it, typed it, and then sat down and sifted through it. And I had this army of undergrad kids at Texas A&M that they were going to volunteer and do some, some work on predators. And they were sitting there looking at, at hair under a microscope that they washed out of some, some poop. I mean, it was, it was wonderful, to be honest. And these kids are telling me, yeah, I went home for a holiday and I told my mom and dad what I do. And I said, yeah, and did mom and dad pay the bills? Yeah, they do. And they're wanting to know why I'm doing this. Oh, okay. <laughs> right. I, and again, we've all been there. So, so it was great fun. But I tell you what we found is that we saw some strong preferences for various native animals in, in those scats. We found a lot, of, a lot of interesting things like the bobcats on that property. For whatever reason, they had a preference for skunk. I have no idea why. I'd love to watch that happen. I've seen a mountain <laughs> lion, I've seen a mountain lion eat a porcupine, and that's an interesting feat. Let me tell you. I mean, they're they're like cautiously trying to flip that thing and then they they get the soft underbelly and they eat it. But what we didn't see 
was really anything in the way of, of sheep and goat evidence. And, and again, with these predators, just so y'all understand, when we're looking at this stuff, you can take any hair from any mammal and put it under a microscope and positively ID what it came from. It's, there's not guesswork there, it's, it's cut and dry. And so we're looking at every piece of hair and every piece of scat. If a predator is eating something, even if they're scavenging it, we're gonna see it. And I think that's the important thing to recognize is we did have some that had some sheep, had some goat hair, but we can't tell the difference between a live predation and a scavenging. You might've had a stillborn or who knows, right? But we didn't see that much considering that there were a goodly number of sheep on the property. We still saw most things were rodents and rabbits and some deer and again, other, other smaller critters like your skunks and your possums and your raccoons and, and that kind of thing. So from our perspective, you know, the dogs were in essence doing exactly what they were supposed to do because before the dogs were brought out, management told me that the, I mean, lamb losses were just incredible. And I believe they were. I have never been on a piece of property that had a higher density of gray foxes. I'm just going to say that. I, if I ever needed to do a study on gray foxes, I know where I'm going, right? Um, but, but we didn't see really any evidence of, of a lot of consumption of those animals, which is neat. And, and again, not saying it doesn't happen, but that the, the numbers were essentially drawn down to a point that perhaps that's something that a sheep raiser can live with. You say, look, I'm gonna expect a certain amount of loss, whether that's to predation or stillbirths or bad mothering, it happens. And perhaps if we've got things back in limits of what somebody can handle, maybe that's a good thing. Yeah, I just, uh, I've heard you discuss that project before and I thought it was really, Humorous and interesting at the same time. So I want to oh, yeah. I, I, I kid you not. There was a chest freezer in College Station, Texas, that was full <laughs> to the brim of nothing but little Ziploc baggies of poop from that ranch. Yeah, that's great. Uh, uh, Dan, you, in your previous response, you, you said something about herded and, and non-herded scenarios and public lands, private lands. I want to go back to that. Uh, guard dog patterns, um, do they differ uh, on... Uh, and sheep operations or with, uh, within their interaction with the sheep flock, if those sheep are being herded with a human present, you know, pretty much 24 seven or when they're not? You know, that's a, I think that's a, a complicated question in, in lots of respects. I think um, just to kind of give some background on what, what we've been looking at and, and trying to develop a system for study in this, um, we've been using trail cameras and GPS collars to relate what the dogs are doing in, in relationship to the sheep, but also to really understand what kinds of predators may be on that landscape and kind of what their activity patterns might be. And there's some limitations to using trail cameras, obviously. Um, but what we're finding is that, that the dog behavior doesn't vary that much. It may be a little different in an open range herded system and that they can roam a little more freely. Um, they may be more free to chase a predator off than, than a fenced system. Um, but a well-bonded dog wants to be with its livestock. And I think that's, to me, one of the aha moments that, that has kind of influenced how I approach, approach that bonding process in our own operation, um, I think is, is really interesting. We do find, you know, we'll pick up dogs in the trail cameras sometimes when the sheep are nearby too. Um, and it corresponds with times of more activity typically. Um, there are those dogs that 
do decide that maybe the campground would be more fun to hang out despite despite what i said earlier and and those dogs typically don't stay with an operation um, yeah. those dogs become pet dogs somewhere um, but i i think what's what's interesting is that that bonding seems to be a driver for the rest of of what we can expect from those dogs there was some just another piece of research that I think would be really interesting to try to, to replicate other places. Um, up at the sheep experiment station in Dubois, they looked at um, rangeland use by sheep that were with the dog versus sheep that were with not were, were not with dogs. And they found that they got about 20% greater spatial utilization of those rangelands where they had dogs. Yep. And so I think it gives sheep some confidence to to go places maybe they wouldn't go otherwise as well. Yeah. So you mentioned the the dogs in the campground. I mean, is there a certain level of roaming? And even if on private property where they're behind a fence, is there a certain level of roaming that's acceptable? Or when does it cross over to, you know, where they're just roaming to out of boredom? I, you know, that's a, um, I think that comes back to some bonding issues as well. Um, I've, somebody told me when we started in the sheep business that there had never been a, a fence invented that could contain a hungry sheep. Mm -hmm. And I'd say there's also never been a fence invented that would contain a determined guard dog. Now that determination may be that I, there's a predator on the other side that I need to take care of, or it may be, this is really boring. It's time for me yeah. to go out and visit the neighborhood. And I think, the first instance is, is probably acceptable in my mind. Yeah. The second instance is a problem. Um, and I, I think what we have found with the dogs that I have not bonded well is that it's not that they weren't bonded with the sheep. It, it's the fact that they were bonded with humans more mm -hmm. than necessary. And so in our kind of environment, if there's, if there's an attractive nuisance of somebody's front porch, um, or the kids come by and say hi every day, pretty soon that dog decides, you know, that's, that's really where I would prefer to be. And that doesn't do me any good either, either from a production standpoint or from a liability standpoint. Right. And I think, I think there's a fine line there. You know, there's some dogs that, that um, if there's not a lot of other things going on, may get bored. Mm -hmm. um, but as we've improved our bonding process, that problem has really been vastly reduced right yeah and i think we could probably do a whole podcast itself on on guard dog bonding theory yeah. i mean there's a lot out there and, and a lot of different approaches um but let's you know we've talked about dogs and, and their interaction with coyotes and uh you know john you talked about you know kind of your experiences down here in texas but you know for our more northern listeners especially you know there's some much larger predators that they deal with so how do guard dogs interact with the same mountain lions and bears and wolves and are those big predators those alpha predators are they do they have the same reaction to guard dogs as that a, a coyote or a fox might have yeah I, I think that's a great point jake so i also encourage folks even though this is an asi podcast you know you're part of a, a worldwide industry and and many of these tools have been used with your counterparts in the old world for a really long time so these dogs absolutely can work on these larger predators, but I, I think it's also a question of what's the context in which it's being done. Uh, you know, and I'll use the example, if you're dealing with grizz that are coming in and grabbing a ewe and your dogs chase off the bear, because the bear goes, I don't want to deal with that. And they've already killed the ewe. 
And then the bear waits a little while and the dogs go back to what they're doing. Bear comes back and grabs another you and kills it. And you, you go all night like this. That, that's a difficult situation, right? right? In the old world, in uh, Poland and a couple of the countries that are kind of high mountain sheep raising, they'll, they'll pin sheep and have dogs that are specifically there to guard those pin sheep against brown bears, which are essentially the same thing as grizz. And it can work and it, and it does work, but you got to use the system for what it was designed for, right? Because those dogs, I think when you're trying to work against extremely large predators like a, like a grizzly bear, or if you're trying to work against a wolf pack, you, you got to be appropriately positioned to have the strategy that can work. You also can't be outgunned. So I, I think it's important too, when you're dealing with things like wolves to understand they adapt, they learn, and the, and the pack learns as a group. So if you can uh, effectively dissuade, there's nothing wrong with the size of a guard dog and the size of a gray wolf. That, that dissuasion can work, but it's having the dog that's going to stand up to them and having the situation where they can effectively guard those sheep as opposed to sheep are spread out all over the place. I can't cover everything all at one time. And I can have a wolf pack that's working the perimeters trying to wear me out right. and then doing what they need to do, right? So I, I think... They absolutely can work. The question I get all the time is about cats, you know, big cats, mountain lions. Because again, even for us down here, mountain lions are, are all across the board. They're, they're increasingly back in the Southeast US too. And, and it happens, you deal with them. And, and I tell people all the time, mountain lions are one of those animals that watch for a very long time before they decide to do something. And I think a dog that's present and constant with the sheep is, is a dissuasion before a lion ever gets involved. Uh, I think a dedicated lion, there's not a lot to do to stop a dedicated lion from killing a guard dog if they really want to. But more likely they're gonna wait till the dog leaves and pick a sheep off when nobody's paying attention. A powerful animal like that, grab a ewe, kill it, drag it off with them. And I, I think that's the thing is the tools work. Remember these guard dog breeds come from places with the same animals basically. And, and they can absolutely do the job because our ancestors would not have kept using a tool that didn't work. <laughs> That's a good point. You know, Dan, you've had some experience with guard dogs and, and mountain lions, obviously. Is, is that kind of your train of thought as well? Yeah, it really is. It really is. I think there's some interesting work being done now on, on some of those breeds from areas in Europe and, and Central Asia where the predator um, population is similar to ours. Just a kind of an anecdotal experience here this last lambing season for us. Um, we had trail cameras out and, and actually in one of my, um, one of my walks checking cameras, I came upon a, a buck that had obviously been killed by a lion buried um, under, under the duff. And, you know, it was, it was a pretty classic lion kill. And about 10 days later, picked up a picture of a lion and a trail camera about 30 yards from our lambing paddock. That's the only time I saw the lion and we had no losses. No losses. So I, I think, you know, that to me, it's, it's a, so who knows what the dog was doing at that point. Right. But I think as John said, you know, lions in my experience, um, I know they've seen me a lot more than I've seen mm -hmm. them. Um, I think they're pretty cautious about things that are novel in their environment. Um, and a dog may make that buck, that three by three buck look like an easier kill than, than a you, um, which is the whole idea of, of having dogs in the first place. You know, I don't have any experience with wolves yet. Um, I've certainly talked with a, not a lot of folks that, that have had experience. Some 
some where the guard dogs worked great and others where there were problems. And I think, again, that to me really speaks to the, these, these problems are all local and specific. It's hard to make, as John said, it depends. It's hard to make any blanket statement about any of this because it is so local. Yeah. Speaking of, of regional problems, how about a non-traditional predator, John? Uh, something that's a huge issue in Texas, specifically in the South, uh, feral hogs, feral swine. How about the interaction between guard dogs and, and pigs? Yeah, that's a that's a great one, Jake. So so this one really I struggle with. And, and guys, I, I've spent so much time on pigs now, it's just unreal. But but in terms of issues, they, they connect and affect everybody. And I, I was in Utah back in February and, and I was talking to some folks and I said, look, I know you think this is an exotic thing that we deal with in Texas and it seems like it's a world away, but you have some in Utah and, and don't think that a dry environment is going to stop them. They're, they're coming. And the problem with pigs really is their intelligence. For, so for sheep raisers who have, have their whole lives worried about educating coyotes and how smart coyotes are and how easily they adapt, pigs are much smarter. And, and that's a, a hard thing to deal with. So guard dogs, can they work against a pig? Uh, I think it's kind of the same question of can they work against a pack of wolves? Uh, but even in a worse sense, I think the communication here with this kind of predator is difficult. So. You, you have pigs, and remember, pigs, you see a group of them, and it may be 10, 15, 20, 30, 40, 50. Adult pigs living in a group, they're all female, and they're all related, raising their offspring together, and they teach one another, and they teach information generationally, so, so things get updated. Once they decide something is not a threat to them, they don't just ignore it, they try to kill it oftentimes. And so we've had situations, uh, human, human attacks from pigs are on the rise, especially in urban areas where the pigs have gotten habituated. People aren't a problem. People don't do anything to me. They don't hurt me. You put pressure on pigs, though, and they think that they're going to get hurt or they're going to be physically injured. They avoid an area for a while, and then they come back. So I, I think the problem for guard dogs really is you get one dog, one pig, you know, uh, a good-sized guard dog and a 200-pound sow, that, those are bad odds, but, but they're workable odds. When you get a group of pigs that have decided to target one dog, I think that gets a lot more difficult. So when we talk about tools in the toolkit, when pigs come onto the landscape, of course, you're working traditional native predator problems with sheep. You're using your tools in the toolkit to try to just keep the damage from happening, but those animals have a job to do. Pigs are a different story altogether. Pigs don't need to exist uh, where they are. They're not native to North America. They need to die, just to be blunt about it. So when I get a, a producer that's dealing with pigs, I say, okay, I know I've been talking to you about trying to coexist with the native wildlife. This is a different story altogether. Let me tell you how to efficiently remove them from the landscape. And this two reasons. One, generally they're a problem. But two, the longer that group of pigs, that family unit, stays there and interacts with the dogs, the more quickly they're going to learn that the dog probably won't aggressively kill or efficiently kill them. So at some point they're gonna decide that the dog is a non-problem and then the dog uh, um, goes through those escalations that Dan pointed out, right? And at the moment that the dog starts to annoy the pigs enough, the pigs are done with it and they turn on the dog and you lose a very valuable resource for your operation. So I. I, I, I never want to say a dog can't do a job, right? But, but the odds are really not good when it comes to pigs because of their social system being very different. Right. 
Well, that's how about step away from predators? What about other, um, you know, non-target prey animals? Deer. Deer are very valuable to a lot of ranching scenarios and, you know, just to the basic ecosystem. How, what's the interaction between guard dogs and, and deer? You know, that, that's a, it's a question that really needs more answers. And I hope in the near future, we do a lot more work on that across a lot of different systems too, because deer are one thing, elk are another thing. I mean, you, you start getting into some of these that are also very economically valuable in some areas, right? Uh, and I, what we've seen in, in the studies that I've done there in West Central Texas really didn't have a lot of issues in terms of you would see deer present in the same pasture with the sheep and the dogs. And there's not a lot of, again, me, me putting this on the animals, it doesn't look like they care much about one another. In that scenario, we didn't have complaints from the, the deer hunters about the dogs chasing their deer. We didn't have issues with uh, you know, looking at uh, the deer numbers really just cratering on the property because the dogs are out there and, and probably could very efficiently kill those deer. But we've not seen a lot of really deleterious interactions. Uh, and I, I think it's important to recognize, though, we still need a lot more data and a lot more systems. I think a lot about some of those, those uh, areas in the West, like Dan mentioned, where it's kind of the space that those native wildlife have got left to spend their time in is getting smaller. And, and so you're gonna have a lot of interactions. What are the dog bonding and training methods that are gonna be most effective at keeping them from, from essentially interacting with those, those non-predatory wildlife? In an ideal world, I'd love for a dog to be able to look at a deer or an elk and go, oh, that's a non-issue and walk away from it. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, you know, Dan, just to keep things rolling along, I, I wanted to ask you quickly, um, you know, what, what's been maybe your experience with uh, other non-lethal control methods that are kind of new or, or more novel that we haven't discussed or haven't talked about, or even um, maybe if you want to touch on uh, llamas and donkeys just briefly, um, you know, that's a, uh, a gardening animal that we haven't really spent a lot of time discussing. So I'd um, love to hear your thoughts on that. Sure, sure. And I'll, I'll start maybe with llamas and donkeys. We've not used donkeys ourselves. I, I do know some folks that have used them um, with some success. Um, our experience with llamas, I think, is supported by the research that I've seen that, that says in smaller paddocks, open systems where they can see, they can be reasonably effective with canine predators. My experience with llamas was that uh, they tended to get in the middle of our sheep and point out the slow ones they didn't like to the predators. And um, so we, we switched back to dogs. Um, but, uh, you know, there are some, some interesting novel um, tools being used out here now that we've got wolves. Um, those noodle men that you see at the used car lot, um, I know that there's been some folks use those. Yeah, and that, that I think can have some short-term effect. Um, one of our wildlife services guys puts mannequins um, with floppy dresses on out in pastures where they've got coyote issues, and, and that seems to have some benefit as well. Um, we've done a little bit of, of experimentation with fox lights um, here at our home place. And I think the key to all of those in, in my mind is, is that you got to mix them up and they're not a permanent solution. That, as, as John said, once the, once the coyotes or, or mountain lions figure out those things aren't really a threat, um, they lose their effectiveness pretty quickly. And I think that's a, a question that that I'd be really interested to hear John's take on, you know, does the efficacy of some of these tools relate to a predator's fear of humans? 
is there a relationship with the potential for lethal control um, with how effective some of these non-lethal tools are? And I, that's, that's an area I think would be really interesting to explore further at some point. Yeah, John, do you have some thoughts? Yeah, I, I think that's a really, really, really good one. You know, we, we've dealt a lot in recent years with urban predator issues. And, and that's, again, an interesting, very strange take on, on predator problems because it's the same critter and we're dealing with the same behaviors, but they're interacting with a very different environment. And I, I'll say, by the way, for everybody listening that's a sheep raiser, uh, you may think that wildlife people really get down on, on sheep raisers for getting down on predators. I have a way easier time dealing with a sheep raiser, convincing them that those animals have got a place in the system than I do with an urban resident uh, who's had a, a pet cat or something killed by a coyote. Man, they are definitely the, the burn them all down mentality. <laughs> um, but, but I get it too, right? It's, it's tricky. And I'll say that the heart of dealing with those urban predators is it comes back really to what you're talking about. When they spend enough time around people and they watch us and they learn and they evaluate, when I make a risky behavior, what's the feedback? And at some point they get to a point where they go, yeah, I know the, these things don't do anything to us. There's nothing here that ever hurts us or, or anything. We're, we're fine. We'll do whatever we want to. So in the urban coyote world, you get to a point that a coyote is comfortable taking pet dogs off of leashes while they're being walked or they're following. I mean, and this happens, right? They're following people, checking them out. That coyote has to die. Uh, research tells us that non-lethal trying to, to haze them back to being afraid of people, they get beyond a certain point. It's not possible because it's, I, I hate to say hardwired, but it's, it's hardwired in. I think something similar is true in our, our rangeland environments, but I think to some extent it gets limited because how much of that do they ever get, right? But I think what comes back to is like your, your uh, parking lot or your car lot uh, inflatable waving arm guy, that's a great idea, by the way. I love that. Just like I love the mannequins with the floppy dresses. It's fantastic. And you change it up and it's something new and they go, I don't know what that is, right? I put the same old tired thing out every night and eventually it becomes background noise. I don't think it has to be a completely novel tool. I just think it has to be in, in a rotation or get swapped out. And, and I may have not pulled out my, uh, my favorite mannequin in, in a year and a half now, but boy, it's time for Sally to come out. I've got coyote problems, right? I, I think that's a, a really important way to look at it. But I do think if you overuse a tool that, and, and a static tool, right? Not a dynamic thing like a guardian animal that can adapt to changing situations. Something static stays out too long and, and everything gets used to it, right? And it, it gets to be a point where they go, this never hurts me. I'm not worried about it. It's just like the, the old adage of the scarecrow with the crows roosting on its arms, right? That tool is no longer effective because they figured out that it's not a threat. All right, guys, this has been an incredible discussion and I'd really appreciate your insight, both of you. Um, you know, sometimes it's hard for our listeners to, to sit down and, and hear everything that you've discussed over the last hour or so. Uh, so I wanted to ask you, you know, before we, we wrap things up, can you maybe give one or two points to our listeners, uh, a take-home message or something that they can take from what you said or, or something that you really want to drive home to them um, that they can maybe put into practice at, at home or just keep in the back of their mind? So, Dan, I'd like to ask you to, to start with that. Sure, sure. You know, I think, I think <laughs> the, we've both said this several times this morning, um, and it's, it's kind of the typical extension answer to every question. But so much of this is, is dependent on your circumstances and really being aware of 
the environment, what you're observing with the wild with wildlife behavior, what you're observing with sheep behavior, um, really drives the tools that are going to work. Um, and I think mixing those up. In my mind, there's there's um, I would not raise sheep without one of those dynamic tools in the mix, like a guard dog. Um, but I know that's not possible for for every producer, and and probably not possible in every situation. So I think picking those suite of tools that make sense to you economically and, and kind of operationally, but knowing that you're gonna have to change the mix of tools and adapt as the predators adapt in your environment is really important. Thank you, John, how about yourself? You know, I, I'll say also, I think on the, the wildlife side of things too, it's, it's also focusing on remembering that what we're really doing is trying to manage damage, not, not the animal per se, I think especially as the landscapes that sheep are raised in have changed and, and you're not talking about, you know, as far as the eye can see, the sheep country, that, that it's a, a losing fight for folks to think that, that trying to do landscape level removal of coyotes is, or, or any predator is going to work. And in a lot of cases, it's not legal either, right? We've got other challenges. And I think focusing on, on something Dan actually opened us up with, which is learning to identify the source of predations when you do get a kill learn and, and these are things guys that are easy to learn easy to teach there's a lot of support out there from myself and, and other professionals learning how to do that predation id because it's going to help you narrow in just on what you're dealing with so you spend your time money and effort on exactly what counts for your bottom line and not what doesn't and and i guess the the second part and parcel of that is always remember that you're dealing with an animal that is not uh, just a static thing itself, right? It's dynamic, it interacts with a dynamic world. And, and when I first started working with predators, there was a lot of folk that around that still looked at it as the only thing we care about is, is what is the most efficient way to, to catch them. Uh, and, and that's part of the equation for sure. I, I love talking about trapping and, and all those good things, but it's also more and more people ask me, like you have here today, Jake, how does the predator see this? How is that perceived? How do they interact? What, what are they built to do? I think keep in mind, not just the behavior of your dogs and your sheep or whatever else, try to think about what is the landscape those predators are dealing with around them and how is that influencing what you're having to do? Because I think if we've got that in mind, we can see problems sometimes before they happen or at least go, you know, I've got got a, a problem coming because the, the neighbor next to me just sold out and that place got cut up into little bitty uh, smaller properties and there's development coming. I bet I'm going to have a lot more movement and traffic than I have previously. I, I think those two points, remembering to manage the damage and learn who's causing it, just focus on that and trying to learn something about the biology of that animal that's causing you a problem and just focus on that. Guys, thank you very, very much. This has really been a fantastic discussion. Uh, that's about all the time that we've got today, maybe even a little more than we allotted uh, at the beginning. But uh, again, like I said, it's been really enjoyable. So gentlemen, thank you both again uh, for, for taking some time out of your morning here and to share your expertise. You bet. Thank you. Thank you, Jake. I learned a bunch. Thanks. Sure. Uh, to our listeners, remember uh, to find the ASI Research Update podcast on, on whichever platform you're listening on this month, uh, because we'll be back next month with uh, a further discussion on predator control. Uh, but until then, remember, eat lamb, wear wool, and to both you and your sheep, stay safe. Thanks, and have a good rest of your day. <laughs>